This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. The real story of the ocean depths begins where you left off. Wonders that defy my powers of description. The secrets that are mine alone. Two minutes past nine. You're tuned to 102.7 3RRR or maybe via rrr.org.au. This is Radio Marinara. We are the program about all things wet and salty. My name's Bron Burton. And my name's Dr Beach. How are you, Dr Beach? I'm very well. Very good. I feel like it's been ages since I've been sitting in this chair. Well, that's because it has. It has been, I reckon, about a month. Haven't you been to the other side of the world and back in that time? I went to the subcontinent for a while. Mm. Very interesting. Of? To all to India, right. subcontinent of India, yes. uh, subcontinent of Asia, which we call India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, all of that. And I went to India. I went to Arissa, now known as Odisha. Right. Lots of fun. Very interesting. Do you find that in your life, we will we'll get into this shortly, um, that that suddenly everyone, or it just seems to be a lot of people that you know, go to the same place. So at the moment, I, I have another friend who's just come back from um, Sri Lanka and another friend who's about to go to Sri Lanka and you've just come back from there. It's all... Yeah. Spooky. Has same sort of thing. It happened with New York in the middle of the year and then a couple of years ago it was Paris. I think know. it might be a you thing. Maybe. <laughs> I'm just a Melbourne gal. You're just a Melbourne Thank gal. Thank you, Tim, very much for Vital Bits. Wonderful as always. Uh, sure is. Let's get into the show. Uh, yeah. We, uh, to start off with, I'm interviewing a PhD student from Monash University, the Department of Chemistry, Michael Burke, and he's going to talk to us about an amazing discovery which was made based or well, started off with sands from Middle Park Beach. There was a bit of press about this a week or so ago, and in fact we had his supervisor on Perrin Cook about a year ago talking about the early data from this work, but the headlines were amazing discovery made from the sands in Middle Park Beach. And it's all about phytoplankton and bacteria, the small things in the world that I like to talk about. So I got 
Michael Ooh. on the phone. I said, come on, let's let's get the PhD student who actually did the hard yards on this, rolled his sleeves up and went down to Middle Park Beach and made this amazing discovery, which has appeared in a prestigious journal called Nature Geoscience. So oh, very heard good. Of, heard of nature and science, but nature has a stable of journals, one of which is Nature Geoscience. And he's, yeah, got his paper in there in the last week or so. We're gonna, so we're going to talk about that first off at about 9.15. Michael's going to come in. Excellent. We're going to uh, cross to speak with um, AJ. Um, if you're listening, AJ, I actually haven't made contact with you this week. So, um, AJ anyway, might not be there. He might not be there, <laughs> but we'll give it a crack to find out what's been going on with Blegowry because it has been a few weeks since we caught up with the great sponge transplant down in Blegowry. So it's well overdue. It, our catch-up is for sure, and they must be getting close. Um, I know they originally had a Christmas deadline. of That's what they were aiming for. Um, then they had some logistical issues with... Uh, it wasn't actually them, it was the construction side of things, slowed things down. I mean, and, and you know, they're just logistics. Um, but it's travelling extremely well. Yeah, weather. Yeah, thanks, Narita. Narita's... I'm going to get you on the mic. No, not today. The, the, the glue, they had a bit of a problem with the bioglue for a while. Too, yeah, they? they did. They ran out of bioglue and then they managed to find a bioglue benefactor. So it's all coming together. It's a great story. So we can hear from AJ about all that. There's got to be a, some kind of, you know, like a working dogs working dog um, production film in this, I reckon. <laughs> the great spear, the sponge. <laughs> nice. Nice, Nerida. Oh, can you just go on the mic? No, she's a live wire gal. We can't get her yeah, she did live a, wire. She did a miles on the... Mike last night. Great show. And Meredith, thank you for coming in after doing that. (laughs) No, we're still going two thumbs up. That's as much as we're going to get. Then we're going to cross to, I think, Port Ferry, but in the western part of the state, to speak with Jock Sarong. Um, Jock uh, has been on the program before in his capacity as an author. Uh, In his, I think, up to his third novel now. Um, His his writing's really taken off, but also in uh, editing and writing Great Ocean Quarterly, that wonderful uh, quarterly magazine which was around um, a year or so ago. Hopefully it will come back one day. Mm-hmm. And uh, But Jock is speaking on behalf of Coastal Watch which is a, um, a marine advocacy group uh, concerned about all sorts of threats and impacts on um, our marine and ocean environments with a slightly surf bent I think, judging from their website. And we like to get a surf bent sometimes. We do. Um, so we'll be speaking with Jock about a press release that they've actually put out, um, drawing attention to some of the concerns relating to um, what they're calling the Great Southern Reef. So not the Great Barrier Reef, but the Great Southern Reef. So yep. we're going to talk to him about that. And then Rex is coming in and uh, for his last segment for 2016. Our very own Rex Hunter. Yes. Our yes. Rex man. Uh, talking about what he's been doing and just some basic concepts about what how you go about looking for a wreck underwater. It's a big big blue environment out there. How do you know where to start? Bloody big problem. Yeah, indeed. And you said for his last segment, and this is not our last show, I should mention. I know during the week people have been saying, is it your last show for other shows? No, this is our penultimate one, so next week, the 18th, will be our last of the year. Mm. Are you coming in? I'd love to. Excellent. Yeah, I think it's in my diary. It'll be like Radiothon. I think we're going to have a cast of thousands next week, so it'll be good fun. Dr Surf's coming in. Cool. We'll talk about that later. Some weather, if you please, Dr Beach. Okay, so it's um, it's not bad out there. It's a little bit cloudy. It's going to be 21 degrees today, partly cloudy, slight 20% chance of light shower in the morning. Uh, light winds becoming south, uh, 15 to 20 k per hour in the middle of the day, then becoming light in the late evening. Um, tomorrow... Well, 30 degrees tomorrow. Oof. It's going to be sunny. 
Tuesday, 33, warm, and then in typical Melbourne, beautiful fashion, back down to uh, 20 degrees on Wednesday, even lower on Thursday, 19, and then bouncing back up to 26 Friday, and perhaps 28 degrees by next weekend. Right. Not a lot of rain during the week, just, well, less than one millimetre I can see. Uh, The tides, for those of you heading out on the water at the heads, in fact, it's just gone high tide, uh, 10 to 9, and it's going to be low tide at around 2.30, for those of you doing those things. I wonder what the surf's like. I've got no idea since I don't get on a board. Oh, there is it. Well, you're pointing at the Sunday age here. There is a surf report, isn't it? The swell. Swellnet provides it. It's very, according to Dr. Surf, it's very good. Okay. Well, here we go. On the water, swell. Moderate onshore winds and easing swells are creating ordinary surf options across the Victorian coast. Water temperature is 16 degrees. Ordinary surf options. So that's, you know, as the Germans would say, Mittelmessig. Pretty average. Let's do some uh, news. I'm going to do... You've got some, I've got some. You go first. I've got some really quick ones. Um, State of the Bays report came out uh, in the last couple of days and I did have a look at it last night uh, on our um, on, the, on their website. Thirty. The summary report was 30 pages long and so it was a, a bit too much to digest it quarter past 11 while I was listening to Livewire. That's two gratuitous plugs for Livewire, Nerida. <laughs> This is, many, this is just shameless. How many can I get in? It's such a great show. See how many I can get in before 10 o'clock. Oh, special hello to Paulie P. Anyway, back to State of the Bays. Um, and uh, Rex was telling me before out in the green room that um, there was a little bit of, um, of news media on it last night. Take home message. Bays are looking pretty good being Western Port and Port Phillip. Apologies, people in Western Port who don't like it being called a bay. But anyway, West Port Phillip Bay and Western Port are looking pretty good. Some increasing pressures as a result of development around Melbourne mm-hmm. and um, some concerning trends, according to a press release put out by the Victorian Parks, our National Parks Association, without actually specifying what those concerning trends are. So we're going to take that away Um just wanted to let you know that we have noticed that it's come through and we'll digest that and... Um, concerning come. trends, what, more jet skis or...? I reckon that's always a concerning trend, but that's me. Yeah. I know, you know, there are people out there who do operate their jet skis. I was, I was being a little bit... Properly. I don't like them either. Anyway... I, I didn't say anything. State of the base. <laughs> you didn't have to. Um, another one which I think we'll just mention in passing because we all know what our reaction to that is, which is um, $1 billion uh, bankrolling, should we call it that, for... Um, oh, goddamn Adani. ...funding Adani's yeah. coal mine. Isn't that just appalling? I mean, it's just beggars belief on many different levels. Number one, that, you know, this now opens things up to digging all of that coal out of... That bit of Queensland, the Galilee Basin. Yep. Burning it, chucking all that carbon into the atmosphere and then, you know, destroying the reef as well as everything else that we... Well, not everything else, but, you know, it's, it's a huge concern. Billion-dollar funding has reportedly been set aside from the Northern Australian Infrastructure Fund, which has given the $2.2 billion project conditional approval, according to the latest report. I think we should move on. Yeah, otherwise we'll just get... Depressed. Pressed and say things about ministers that we probably shouldn't know. Oh, I'm going I'm to chuck in a uh, really big plug for Surfrider Foundation. Let's counterbalance that negative with some positive Dr. Beach. Hmm. So Surfrider are launching their annual fund campaign. They're hoping to raise $50,000, slightly 
different from the one billion. But they, look, they should apply to Malcolm Turnbull. How can we have a billion for this? <laughs> $50,000 goes a long way with community, community advocacy. So good on your Surfrider Foundation. Um, they're fighting every threat that faces our beaches, protecting the entire length of our beautiful coastlines. They've had some big wins this year. Uh, they saved Lighthouse Beach in Ballina from a proposed shark eco-net barrier uh, and they've been fighting hard for um, container deposit legislation that's now being implemented in Queensland, New South Wales and Western Australia as well. Uh, they've got lots of battles coming up. Um, they're uh, looking at a, a proposed shipping terminal at South Stradbroke um, uh, and a whole lot of other stuff as well. So if you would like to donate, if you're in that gift-giving frame of mind, and you know, rather than going and spending a lot of money on some product, <laughs> you can put it to good use. Yeah, uh, put it to some really good use. They've actually got a prize as well. They've got some boards to give away um, as, as a, uh, well, their prizes. Um, when you make a donation, you go into the draw for a prize. So surfrider.org.au, go and have a look and um, do some great donating for Surfrider Foundation. I've got a little bit of news. Um, a green alga has been discovered in a cooling pond in... Um in France at an experimental nuclear reactor and this thing rejoices in the name of Cockermixer actinobiotis and it appeared in the recent edition of the Journal of Psychology. Interesting thing about this is that in cooling ponds and highly radioactive areas we know that bacteria live. So there are things called extremophiles, various different types of bacteria that live in weird and wacky places like very high temperatures, very high pressure, very high concentrations of salt. Very low oxygen. Very low oxygen, zero oxygen. Some of them live in as I mentioned before, in areas where there's lots of radiation. Um, it's never been noted, it's never been seen that an alga, so a phytoplankton cell, which is not a bacterium, it's you know, more closely related to us than it is to bacteria, uh, can get by in life in these areas. And it's doing so under enormous amounts of radiation. Um, this is a descriptive article uh, by some people in France, of course, and they're kind of pontificating or postulating how it is surviving by... It, when you have a lot of radiation, what that does is screws up your DNA, so it makes it difficult for the cell to divide. Um, so the ones, the bacteria we know, that, that can survive in these extreme levels of radiation have very sophisticated protective mechanisms for right. their DNA, so they can get by in life after that. So after this initial description, they're saying, well, perhaps this is... Um, we can see this in this green alga. So, of oh. course, this is now going to stimulate a lot more work on this to oh, yeah. see how things can resist enormous amounts of DNA radiation, you know, gamma rays, ionising radiation, all those things. Just briefly, I thought you'd like to hear about cockamixes because I like to talk about phytoplankton wherever I can. Indeed. You, you are the, um, you're the al alga advocate of the planet, I think. Of the, I don't know about the planet. I do like I don't sharing know. them with the, the audience in Melbourne I, on a Sunday morning. I don't think I've ever heard anyone be so enthusiastic. And indeed, you know, as I mentioned I before, we got, we got Michael Burke coming in after yes. track and he's going to tell us about the phytoplankton in the sands at Middle Park and in other places like Denmark. We're going to have Michael in very shortly. Two quick things. Um, one is that uh, I just wanted to mention, um, thank you, Mark Rodrigue, for sending this our way. It's a very sad note. Um, Don Love, who's been on the program many times over the years um, at, as part of Friends of Beware Reef, his partner, Liz Gillian, um, died 
during the week um, after diving and not related to uh, the incident itself, but um, it was sudden and unexpected. So we're just sending our, our thoughts and our hearts out there to the um, Beware Reef team in particular, um, and including Mike Irvine and the, uh, the rangers at Orbost. Um, the uh, Great Fish Count, which is underway at the moment, we had Kay Mills in talking about that recently. That's continuing in honour of Liz. So I just wanted to um, acknowledge Liz's passing and send our, our, our love to Don and uh, to all the people at Friends of Beware Reef because we know you're feeling it pretty hard at the moment. Estamos escuchando Radio Marinada en tres triple R. I reckon that little boy must be an adult by now. <laughs> he probably is. <laughs> he, Good he to started, find out. He started in 1976, didn't he, when the station started? <laughs> yeah. uh, indeed. We are joined in the studio now by Michael Burke. Michael Burke is from Monash University from the Chemistry Department. He's a PhD student. And Michael is the one who is, I, I guess, feeling very fortunate and very, well, I guess not lucky. It's not lucky when you get a, a big paper out. Um, he's just had a paper in the journal called Nature Geoscience, which is centred upon work which was done at Middle Park Beach. How are you going, Michael? Yeah, going well. Thanks for having me, Dr Beach. <laughs> That's a pleasure. I, well, I had to get you in and I'm sure Bron wants to talk to you as well because we love phytoplankton here. We do. On Radio Marinara. Um, and this is centred around a discovery which you have made with, um, with Perrin Cook, who is your supervisor, Associate Professor Perrin Cook at Monash, which is based around diatoms. And diatoms, again, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, of course, do know the answer to this question. <laughs> diatoms <laughs> are phytoplankton. And phytoplankton, the single-celled photosynthetic things that we... There are lots of them in the ocean. There's lots of them in every body of water, even fresh water. We tend to think of them as being in the water, but not actually in the sediment. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so diatoms and other types of microalgae are just covering... Uh, all the surface of these uh, sand particles. And uh, we've been studying what kind of uh, biologically mediated chemical reactions that they're responsible for. Okay, yeah, and we do sometimes when we go down to the beach we can see coloured sand, so that is from various different phytoplankton that perhaps don't swim around the water column but hang out in between the sand grains and glide around, and diatoms are one of these, aren't they? And they're, yeah, that's they're, right. They're golden brown in coloured, so they look a little bit like... Well, they're kind of related to brown seaweeds, those, those things. So with these diatoms, what exactly what I mean you, you talked about cycling of chemicals and things. What what did you what did you discover? Well, essentially what we were trying to work out was that uh, when we grabbed some sand from, from the beach and brought it back to the lab, we'd noticed that uh, when there was oxygen in the sand, the rate of carbon dioxide production rate would match quite well with the rate at which uh, the oxygen was being consumed. But when we took away the oxygen, there was still all this carbon dioxide being produced, but uh, there was relatively uh, small rates of the chemical process which we thought should be dominant at the time. So in other words, we had all this carbon dioxide being produced and we didn't know uh, by what mechanism it was being produced. So we produce carbon dioxide. When, so when we breathe, we take in oxygen and we exhale spent air and that contains carbon dioxide. And that carbon dioxide is it's kind of a waste product, but the reason that we breathe is to make... It's kind of like the petrol for us to work, which is this thing called ATP. And I guess so what you're saying here is that you're discovering that in the in the diatoms in these phytoplankton that they are 
using this alternative method to make ATP, which is what we call fermentation. Yeah, that's right. It's a, it's a process called dark fermentation, and essentially they're taking an internal storage of carbon, which they've generated via photosynthesis, and they're fermenting it, so they're reacting the carbon with other carbon molecules, and they're generating uh, fatty acid molecules and also quite a lot of, of hydrogen, which we're quite, quite excited about. That, that is very exciting. It's quite novel. But just for the listeners, so fermentation we might be used to thinking about. So yeast, the benevolent yeast, God bless it, has been, when that is deprived of oxygen, what that does is that through fermentation, and the reason it does fermentation is to make this cellular energy currency, which I use, Michael uses, Bron uses, Nerida uses, we all need to make ATP. And the byproduct for yeast, making ATP in the absence of oxygen is to produce ethanol. So we love yeast. It's beautiful. It gives us alcohol. It gives us booze. But what these algae are doing is that they're doing fermentation and making hydrogen. Yeah, that's right. And this is the first time that people have realised that this has happened? Well, people have, have uh, observed dark fermentation occurring in, in cultures, but this is uh, the first time that we've realised that dark, dark fermentation is occurring uh, in sediments all around Australia and we're pretty sure the whole world and to such a great extent. So you've actually gone out into the field... Middle Park Beach, <laughs> and measured this in situ. Uh, not quite in situ. We've uh, we've brought we've gone out to Middle Park Beach mainly because uh, that's where I like the parking the most. Uh, <laughs> I love that. <laughs> so, so this, I this, was wondering what the particular <laughs> thing about Middle Park Beach was. So, so let me get this straight. But you, know, you started this work at Middle Park Beach. You chose Middle Park Beach. You could have chosen, you know, kind of beach in Queensland or something. But you like the parking at Middle Park Beach. That's right. Yeah. And there's a great cool. cafe there too. There's a really good cafe. That is important. <laughs> yeah. That's really important. And you got a nature geoscience paper out of this. Yeah. That's, that's right. just gold. That's awesome. <laughs> Okay, let's, so let's drag it back to the science. All right. All right. So, uh, yeah, we'd go out to Middle Park Beach and I'd collect a bunch of sand and seawater and I'd get kind of dirty looks from people because they thought I was, like, stealing crabs or, or something like that. Right, yeah, don't uh, know, asking a few people. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I'd, I'd bring... I'm just taking sand. <laughs> yeah, I swear. Uh, and uh, I'd bring it back to the lab and I'd set these up into little columns which would allow us to pump seawater through the columns and by uh, measuring what we were pumping into them and what was coming out, we could kind of determine the production and consumption rates of, of key analytes. Uh, so um, we plugged in a hydrogen sensor uh, out the back of these columns and, yeah, noticed that there was very large quantities of H2 hydrogen being produced. And this is what alerted you to the fact that, you know, this, well, this is a novel thing, making lots of hydrogen, that they're doing this, this so-called dark fermentation to do that. That's right, yeah. be nice if we could get them to make alcohol instead of hydrogen. <laughs> but actually we could use the hydrogen for something, couldn't we? Yeah, that's right. Like, hydrogen is of great interest to many people in the biofuels industry, mainly because when you burn hydrogen and oxygen, all it produces is water. So, you know, obviously a very clean uh, source of, of fuel. But uh, one of the main reasons why it's not really viable at the moment is because uh, the majority of the hydrogen being produced today is done through electrochemistry. So if you're generating all that electricity through burning coal anyway, it's kind of indirectly... It's like having an electric car in Victoria. It doesn't really make much sense <laughs> at the moment. Not at the right, moment, yeah. but you, we can. I can. There's already a change that's. Well, beginning. yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Kind of can you can you see a point in the future, Michael, where this might actually be something that is viable? Oh, I think it's it's. I suppose it's up to the coming years whether or not we can get these diatoms to really, uh, what we can do to maximise their rates and whether or not we can uh, make it viable on a on an industrial scale. Mm. 
The other thing I really liked about the paper is that you then took these diatoms and a couple of other algae that were in the sand and you brought them back to the lab and you cultured them on their own and showed that they have the the cellular material, the cellular hardware, the, you know, the proteins to be able to do this kind of metabolism. Yeah, that's right. So it was really good kind of secondary confirmation to, you know, show that it was actually diatoms because the reason why we initially thought it was diatoms was because they're kind of um, dominating uh, the sediment in terms of a eukaryotic category. And so we'd hit the sand with um, antibiotics beforehand and saw the hydrogen kept on kept on trucking. Uh, so, oh, In other words, it's, so you suspected it might have been bacteria that, that were doing this job mm. as opposed to the algae. So you chucked in a whole lot of antibiotics, kill off the bacteria. It's all still happening. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so, yeah, then we, um, uh, in a collaboration with uh, the John Beardall uh, Microbiology Group at Monash, they were kind enough to culture some, uh, some diatoms for us straight from the sediment collected at Middle Park. And uh, we ran an experiment using those cultures and we saw hydrogen being produced under those conditions. So very nice. happy with that. Mm. So this uh, Middle Park Beach got the, the headlines and that's initially that's where you started the work. Is it, have you, I, I noticed on the paper that you have collaborative authors from Denmark. So was work done there in a similar vein to, to prove it in the Northern Hemisphere, for example, as well? Uh, I think um, my supervisor's on sabbatical in Europe at the moment. He's kind of, uh, he's been doing some work to, uh, to confirm that it's all present in Europe as well. Uh, the other place besides um, Middle Park that we've we've looked at this is also up in, in Heron Island. We did a little trip up there. Because the parking up there is really good too. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. Uh, Sorry, I had to get that in. <laughs> That's right. Uh, and uh, yeah, we saw it being produced in, in very high rates in Heron Island as well. So it's great evidence to th- suspect this is ubiquitous. And Monash has got a field station at Heron, doesn't it? Is that is that why uh, you went to Heron in particular? Uh, I think it's got a, a research station. We were there with the, the Bradley Air Group from, from University of Queensland. Yeah. Hmm. So this is truly a global phenomenon. Yeah, we, we and you th- And you think of the so. amount of marine sediments that are out there, it's, it's just huge. That's right. Mm. That they're my thoughts too. Yeah, the beach. you just kind of see this thing massively, exponentially expanding in its possibilities. And I guess this also points to the fact that much of the hydrogen which we have in the atmosphere, you can now ascribe to it being produced by these algae, that's a, as opposed to from other sources. Yeah, that's, that's a that's a strong possibility. Okay, algae. Algae, yeah. the wind. <laughs> Phytoplankton, that's where it's at. It's fantastic. <laughs> Michael, thank you very much for coming in and sharing the story with us. But just before you go, actually, PhD students, we always like to grill PhD students on how's your thesis going? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's, it's getting there. I'm, uh, I'm uh, working on it at the moment and I hope to be done in the next couple of months. But you've already banged out this big paper, yeah. so that's really good. You've got a couple of chapters done, presumably. Yeah. And, the, you know, been peer-reviewed, so when you send it out to the examiners, they're going to be confident that, you know, this is good work. They're not going to have to just out pull of interest, it apart. Can you can you actually reference yourself? I have referenced myself. That's awesome. <laughs> That's amazing. I didn't. I just you know. And can you send a copy of your research paper when you actually send your um send your thesis off to the examiners? Uh, Do you kind of attach that at the back? Okay, I've already should, published should this, stable. so you'll look like a bit of a burke if you don't pass me. <laughs> Yeah, you can. You staple it in at the back with a, with a paper clip. <laughs> and a $50 note. No, <laughs> <Yeah>. just kidding. <laughs> 
Michael, thank you very much for joining us. We've had Michael Burke, PhD student from Department of Chemistry or Water Studies. Um, yeah, the area. Water Studies Centre. Water Studies yeah. Centre at Monash University in Clayton joining us talking about yeah. his discovery with diatoms and hydrogen at Middle Park Beach. And you're on Radio Marinara with Dr Beach and Dr Burton. I'm thinking maybe next year we need to have a segment on this show called the, uh, the Phytoplankton Files. Uh, indeed. Yeah, we can work on that. We'll workshop that yeah. over the summer. Excellent. Indeed, we are all in luck because we have on the phone uh, to tell us all about what's been going on in Blake Gary with the great sponge transplant, AJ from dive to you How are you, AJ? Fantastic, Brian and guys. How are we? Yeah, well, thank you. Hey, uh, we, we're putting you on the spot because <laughs> uh, normally, <laughs> normally I touch base with you on Saturday, but I'm um, running around from pillar to post yesterday. What's been happening? It's been a few weeks since we caught up, I think, last time with Jackie um, and Jackie Younger, who's uh, been helping out a lot with the um, the citizen science component to this. What, what's happened over the last few weeks and where are you up to? Well, obviously, a lot more sponge gluing is uh, taking place and uh, the commercial guys have finally got some uh, good weather, so they've made some pretty uh, decent progress. We're about three quarters of the way through uh, transplanting the lower landing section, so closest to shore where you would moor up your little boats and uh, get on and off there. Um, that's been uh, really, really good actually because we've seen some fantastic retention rates there and already after two weeks, um, so re reattachment. So whether that's got something to do with the shallower water versus the deeper water, we're not too sure yet, but um, some certainly some exciting things happening and and getting populated by the animal life very, very quickly. So, uh, yeah, really good things happening. It's it's just so incredibly cool that, you, you know, transplant the sponge and the animals will come to the party. It's just it's just so awesome. Um, where are you heading over the next couple of weeks? Next week's our last program for the year, so we'll try and catch up with you again then just to kind of get a sense of what's happening over summer. Um, what? Let's start with this weekend. What are your plans for this weekend? This upcoming Saturday will be our final relocation session for 2016, um, probably due to recommence uh, mid to late January, depending on the um, the commercial guys' progress after New Year's and it's apparently mooring season, so that I think we get sidelines for that. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, so sponge session Saturday um, and then uh, moving through to Christmas and doing all of our other stuff for, for Dive to You. But um, there could be a cheeky midweek um, relocation session between um, around about the 20, 21st, 22nd of uh, December as well. So um, it's the last chance to try and button everything up and have it fully, uh, the lower landing fully transplanted before we all hit the Christmas parties, basically. <laughs> and so over um, Christmas, I'm assuming I mean, there are going to be a lot of people down your way, down Blegari, um, Rye, um, Tutgaruk, <laughs> Rosebud, that, um, um, people who've probably been listening to this program and hearing your updates and thinking, right, finally I'm going to be down there for a few weeks um, and I'm, you know, able to help. Is there still stuff that they can do to help you guys through um, through January and over that Christmas yeah, well, period? Yeah, well, the, the citizen science, so the adopter sponge side of things is certainly still going to go ahead. That's just as you get into the water, as often as you get into the water. Um, and that's, like we discussed a few weeks ago, mostly is about photographing your adopted sponges or the panels or panel sections um, and um, keeping them, you know, framed appropriately and sending them through to Cade uh, uh, Mills at uh, the VNPA. And they use their software to, to map the growth rate so that people can get in there um, a lot of the time, especially on low tide, you're very close to the transplanted sponges on the lower landings. 
So you can actually get in there on snorkel and, and take some photos and, and adopt a sponge if you're actually not a scuba diver. So um, other than that, you can certainly jump in and have a look and then um, stay up to date on the Facebook page for Operation Sponge uh, for you know, upcoming events if we do anything over the... Um, you know, the New Year's period. Excellent. So that's the best place for people to go. Um, we've put a couple of links to that on our Facebook page, but we'll do again this week as well, just a refresher. So if you um, go into Facebook and just have a look for Operation Sponge and they'll come across uh, all the amazing work that you guys are doing. Hey, thanks, AJ. We might catch you next week just for one last one for the year. Um, we can uh, have a quick report on how you went um, next Saturday, <laughs> looking, mm-hmm. looking back. And uh, is that okay? We'll catch up with you then. Yeah, I'd love to. Thank you very much. Awesome. Thanks. Good luck. All right, guys. Cheers. Bye. See you. Bye. AJ there from Dive to You. Isn't that fantastic? It's What an incredible success story this is. Now, in Australia, we have an Australian reef, uh, which is worth more than $10 billion annually. And guess what? It's not the Great Barrier Reef. The Great Southern Reef is a scientific term used to describe a collection of interconnected temperate reefs stretching 8,000 kilometres, covering five states and the entire southern coast line of Australia. There are growing concerns that the Great Southern Reef is slowly being destroyed by the impacts of climate change. And with commitments to greenhouse emission reductions now looking unstable, um, particularly by uh, some parts of the world, <laughs> there is concern that the uh, current risks for the Great Great Southern Reef could rapidly intensify. To tell us all about it, we're now crossing to the far western part of Victoria to Port Ferry to welcome from Coastal Watch, Jock Sarong. Good morning, Jock. G'day, Bron. Hey, great to have you back on Marinara. Thanks, great to be on. Uh, wearing a different hat this time. <laughs> yeah. um, as we discussed earlier, I've got my uh, surf life-saving hat on. I look a bit like Strop. Yeah, <laughs> so you're about to go off and do nippers, so we're going to keep this brief. Um, but Coastal Watch, uh, so is the hat that you're wearing today. Tell us tell us a little bit about uh, Coastal Watch and what you do and who you are. So Coastal Watch is um, a coastal recreation website which takes in a few other media, like Surfing World is one that a lot of people would know, and obviously it does live cams and um, various kinds of journalism and video and... Um, Increasingly, it's trying to take a role in talking about coastal management issues, which is where this stuff sort of becomes relevant. And uh, so we mentioned the Great Southern Reef. Maybe I kind of gave a grief, uh, grief, a brief description <laughs> um, from from the press release that your people put out. But let, let's talk about what the Great Southern Reef is. Um, where does it start? Where does it end? What's included? Yeah, well, it's interesting. It's a, a good news story and a bad news story that have emerged sort of simultaneously. The Great Southern Reef is um, about, as you said, 8,000 kilometres of cool temperate reefs that start around Kalbarri on the west coast and go all the way around and they take in Tassie and they stretch up almost to the Tweed at the Queensland-New South Wales border. Um, it, it's a revolutionary way of thinking that scientists just recently, there's a bloke called Scott Bennett, who's a Tasmanian, um, who's sort of leading this, uh, have, have come to this idea that if you look at those reefs in the aggregate, they are really one huge reef system, much like the Great Barrier Reef is um, many hundreds of separate coral reefs, but brought together, it's one ecosystem. And this, this is a similar way of thinking. So that's kind of revolutionary in its own way, but at the same time, it reveals a whole lot of very serious threats that we've got to start thinking about. Hi, Jock. It's Dr Beach here. And, it, yeah, the Great Southern Reef, it, it's, it's a beautiful concept, isn't it? It's great to hear that someone is really trying to 
to let us know that not only do we have coral reefs, but we have this great southern reef. And it, it's based, it, they're rocky reefs, aren't they, with lots of kelp and lots of you know beautiful fish nurseries and all sorts of biota are dependent upon this. Yes, yeah, and if there's one defining organism that, that really um, is common to all of it, it's common kelp, um, Aclonia radiata, which is absolutely everywhere, and for any of us who surf or fish or dive or whatever else, it's something that you're so constantly aware of seeing around you that you almost forget it's there. But um, it, it's so important as a hidey hole for critters and um, as a basis for our fisheries, and, and it has all these different roles. And what's going on is that as water temperatures change, um, common kelp, and, in, and particularly giant kelp, are having real trouble um, maintaining their place in the system. So there's all sorts of flow-on effects from that. Yeah, we, we talked on this show a little while ago about the, the, the paper that came out describing the the recession, if you like, and the spread of Macrocystis and Aclonia on, on the West Coast, how it's, it's dropped in the last several years, perhaps a couple of hundred kilometres, the distribution of it, and they're being re- replaced in that northern bit with yeah. things that look like coral reefs. Yeah, and one of the most frightening examples of this is that this group of scientists did a dive off Calbarry, just off the back of the town, and they had a marked site that they wanted to measure over time. And when they dropped to the bottom in 2011, they thought they were in the wrong place because (laughs) there were just bare rocks. And uh, what had happened was that um, the isotherms, in other words, the common lines of constant temperature, had plunged south as warm water flowed down from the north. And the result of that was that it killed off the giant kelp. Um, It then exposed all of the invertebrates that rely on it for their cover. Um, Grazing fish came down from the north and what you wind up with is, they call them turfs, just little small grasses on the rocks. Um, And the sea urchins quickly finish those off and you wind up with really barren patches. It's quite a frightening idea. Yeah, so it's a complete change in the ecology which takes, well, we don't know how long it's going to change, how long it's going to take to settle back down to something else, which is a sort of a a working ecosystem. And I think it's really interesting what your group is doing too, Jock, is drawing attention to that and drawing attention to the, um, and and unfortunately it's just a reality that some people will tend to only react to, to things like this if there's a dollar figure attached to it. There's so much publicity that's gone into the um, the awful situation facing the Great Barrier Reef and of course people link that immediately to, to tourism and because the Great Southern Reef sort of doesn't have that uh, that tourism but also that probably whatever might be up to 40, 50 years of marketing um, behind it, it it's a for a lot of people it's just out of mind Yes and, and none of this is for one moment to suggest that we should be backing off on protecting the Great Barrier Reef but Um, There's two stats that really bear that out. One is that between 2010 and 2014, uh, the Australian Research Council gave $55 million in grants for research on coral reefs. Over that same period, the amount of money that went to cool temperate reefs was about $4 million. Um, That that really demonstrates how much more effort we need to make. The other one is that um, there was a media survey done which showed that of all of the reef stories in Australian media, one to three percent of them are about temperate reefs. Um, the other, whatever that is, 99, yeah. 97, 99 percent are about coral reefs. That's right. Um, because 
I suppose they're sexier is, is the bottom line. Well, and that's and there's established marketing and comms around that too. I think that's that's got a large part to play in it. I, th- I think it's the term reef. People, when they hear the word reef, they think corals. But and we, you know, we're doing everything we can on this show, and and, and it's fantastic to to see that that you are as well. Yep. Trying to, to get people to think about reefs as being all sorts of different environments. Yeah. And when we talk about yeah. the, the dollar factor attached to it too, you've got to look at commercial fisheries and this is something that, that your press release draws out, Jock. Um, rock lobster and abalone, recreational fishing, of course, which is huge, and, and regional tourism, which also operate along the southern reef. Yeah, so probably the easiest way to understand the scale of that is that the WA rock lobster fishery by itself is worth more than all of the combined commercial fisheries on the Great Barrier Reef. Um, the, the economic value of the Great Southern Reef is, is infinitely greater. Um, and of course, there's lots of other ways of valuing a reef system. It's only one of them, but the money at stake here is substantial as well as all of the other environmental flow-ons. So what's your plan from here, Jock? So looking forward, and we'll keep touching base with you on this through 2017, um, but what what will you and Coastal Watch be doing sort of to continue this um, push for advocacy and also just for greater recognition of the value of the Southern Reef? Yeah, well, the hope is that we'll stay in touch with this group of scientists, one of whom, um, Scott Bennett's currently, it's got to be the best gig in the world. He's gone to Spain to um, look at Mediterranean reef systems, but we'll stay in touch with him. Um, and Thomas Wernberg, who's based here in Australia. Um, so I, I hope that over the coming 12 months or so, we can run a series of further stories about this and look at the impact. So I think we know a lot about the West Coast and what's happening there, but it'll be interesting to look at the East Coast. One of the emerging issues is the spread of giant sea urchins. Um, so we might have a look at that next, I think. All right, fantastic. Well, we'll, um, we'll keep in touch over the summer and uh, organise a time for you to be on the show shortly into the new year. And I'm going to let you go and put on your strop hat and go and start wrangling those nippers because um, I know that's coming up very soon for you. <laughs> Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Thanks, Jock. Jock. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Jock. See ya. Jock Jock Sarong. And I forgot to ask Jock about the um, the plug uh, for the the website. So it's coastalwatch.com. It's an easy one to find. And we'll put a link to that on our Facebook page. We should probably plug Jock's books as well. He's got three out now, hasn't he? (laughs) He does. He's a great crime writer. I've only read the first one. It's an absolute cracker. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Anyway, we we will get to that. Good morning, Rex Hunter. Oh, good morning, Bruin. Dr. Beach. How are you going, Rex? Yeah, good. <laughs> so, gearing up. the other side of the studio here. Yeah. <laughs> so, you've, um, today uh, we're going to talk a little bit about how you go about searching for Rex, but also some of the stuff that's not, not searching for you, searching for yeah. like, underwater Rex. She's <laughs> yeah. like my a wife. Dog, a, a dog called Rex. Yeah, run off, chase some possums. Um, but, uh, yeah, and, and what's coming up for you over the summer, too, because we're heading into summer. Is that a good time for looking for wrecks underwater? Uh, still, any time of the year is a good time of the year. Just yep. as long as the wind's not blowing too strong. So right. light winds we're looking forward to. The next few days are going to be really good. Excellent. And um, let's talk about mowing the lawn. That's what you call it, isn't it? Well, <laughs> this is up. This is a basic technique we use um, using either like a side scan sonar, which is a like a... Um, advanced depth sander which gives you a 3d image of the of the seabed or a magnetometer which is a instrument that detects um, anomalies in the earth's magnetic field it's not actually a metal detector so we use those two instruments obviously you have to do all your research first before you even think about putting your boat in the water and um, we set up a grid uh, 
depending on the depending on the size of the uh, the object you're looking for. If it's something small like a little wooden shipwreck that's buried, maybe buried in mud or just a little bit sticking up, you, you have really close lanes. So you might be running maybe 20, 30 metres apart. And if you've got, say, I usually work on a kilometre by a kilometre or so. So you've got uh, lots, of, lots and lots of lanes to run up and down looking for signals. So is, is, are there any signals that you're searching for right at the moment? So anything that's on your list of like, I, I suspect there's a wreck of this out there and that's what you're going to go and, do and, this summer. And yeah. what what is the signal? What does it actually look like? You're talking about anomalies too. I'm I'm just in answering that question. Like, what is an anomaly? What what's normal and what's not? Uh, depend on a uh, with a magnetometer. You could you have a, a background Earth's magnetic reading. So it might be whatever nano tassels. And then um, when you're going say a, a big metal wreck, the, uh, the signal will drop down. So the signal drops off, and then it picks up again once you get over the other okay. side. So that gives you, a, all your dials go go berserk on your magnetometer and you think, oh, oh goodness, maybe I've got something here. <laughs> Lots of pings. Lots of pings, yeah, so the, they'll be buzzing away there. So that's always a good sign. And you're talking about doing research before you even get out there. Is that just based on historical records? Well, historical records, um, like any any of the uh, well-known rec publishers, uh, Jack Loney, uh, Ron Parsons, Don Love, all those those guys have done excellent work. So you use theirs, theirs as a basis and then you go, say, maybe um, look through the Trove website because they've digitised just about every Australian newspaper or major Australian newspaper. So that is just a fantastic resource. It saves you... So you go back, back through old versions of the Argus? Well, you can do a word-sensitive search. Okay. You've, you've put your shipwreck name in and just type, type it in, hit enter... And there's a very good chance you'll find a reference to your shipwreck, plus a lot of other stuff too. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> is it easy to get distracted? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I imagine That's it would be. Problem, yeah. I would be. Yeah. Um, so, how many wrecks uh, do we think are out there at the moment that we haven't found yet? Oh, we being you. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and all of the other maritime well, archaeologists. In Victoria, there's approximately I think 650. Let's go 653 shipwrecks. Out there, and probably only a third have been found. <gasps> really? Yeah, yeah, there's plenty, plenty out there to be found yet. Really. In this day and age of of the technology that we have and our ability to retain information, we we still are missing four hundred odd shipwrecks. Oh yeah, yeah, they're, they're this, out there. Is this just in Port Phillip and Western Port? Oh, uh, in Bass Strait as well. Oh right. So, wow. um, a lot of yeah, a lot of um, food for thought. Uh, plenty of. Plenty of uh, work ahead there of me. I should hopefully get it finished within the next 20 years or so. So is there one wreck you'd love to find this summer? Well, yeah, the, oh, don't tell anybody. Is that the one? Is that the one? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's all right. There's no one listening. <laughs> Probably not. There's a wreck called the Water Witch and it just happens to fit in with my Lyme thesis I'm doing uh, through Fed Uni. So I'm looking for that and that sank off Black Rock in 1870. So I've got a rough rough idea where Oh, I'm so looking. it's in the bay? Yeah, yeah, it's right in the bay, yeah. Wow. So uh, it's, I've got my search, I've done all my research and I've ping, pinned it down to a fairly narrow area. So I'm going to go out there soon and uh, with a side scan soda and start mowing the lawns. And with a name like Water Witch, you'd really want to find that, wouldn't yeah. you? Yeah. So is this, is this a wooden vessel? Wooden vessel. Bits of iron in it? Yeah, there'd be a small amount of iron. There might be the anchors and that type of thing. Um, it's also, uh, it's about... Twelve and a half metres long. Uh, Bullion on board? 
full of bullion, bullion, yeah, bullion <laughs> and specie. <laughs> That's what I'm looking for. Has it, so has the, the bullion been recovered? No, it was just firewood. Oh, <laughs> sorry, you bro. got us all excited. Well, I knew there was another one that you were looking for that had suspected. Yeah, the, the Winchester of Coinscliff. Yeah, that's, that's got uh, 600 gold sovereigns on it. So that's like a cool. And that's never a million dollars worth of treasure. So, so what are your plans between now and when we come back to Lots. air in early Feb? Find the wind. No. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and then you won't be back. Yeah, be back. <laughs> You'll be off on some island Ta- somewhere. Haiti or something. <laughs> yeah. uh, find the water witch, hopefully. So I'm doing a side scan search for her because uh, it's, it's, um, there's not much iron, so I'm looking to um, look for a magne- uh, uh, side scan signature, which would be sort of straight lines like bits of timber and maybe cast a bit of shadow. If, if you imagine you've got a, a light and you're shining across the object, there's a shadow cast from that object behind it. Right. And that's what you're looking for. Okay. That's one of your signatures. Awesome. Well, we're really looking forward to having you back in February and finding out how you went. Hopefully you'll have a report of a a newly found vessel. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) You'll have to push all of the people sunbathing out of the way. So uh, do you get lots of questions? Uh, Oh, the most thing you get is fishermen. Oh, okay, yeah. It's called a wally magnet every time you stop. Wally, you'll turn up to see what you're doing. Hey, thank you, Rex. (laughs) No problem. Thank you, Dr. Beach. Pleasure. Thank you, Nerida. Thanks to our guest today, Michael Burke from Monash Uni uh, and also Jock Sarong. Uh, Next week's program, Dr. Surf's coming in. It's our final one for 2016. He's got Barry Sutherland coming in talking about an amazing new book about surfing in the 60s. Um, John's coming in as well and hopefully we'll catch up with Neil Blake to find out what's happening with all his wonderful community work. Stay tuned for Radiotherapy. Have yourselves a wonderful Sunday and we will catch you next week for more Radio Marinara. Bye for now. Radio Marinara is brought to you by Deakin University's School of Life and Environmental Sciences. Triple R Sponsors. Triple R Immaculate Reception. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.